Hey everybody, and welcome back. We're going to tell another JavaScript story here. Uh, actually, it's probably going to be an Elm story, if I remember right. Uh, we're talking to Richard Feldman. Richard, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Richard. I work at uh, No Red Ink. We make grammar and writing software for English teachers. Uh, we're hiring. I do a lot of Elm stuff. Um, pretty much, uh, it's like kind of taking over my social life. <laughs> really, really into it. Yeah, um, you were on JavaScript Jabber. I'm trying to find the actual episode. But uh, you came on and talked about Elm with... Uh, uh, Evan Chaplicki? That's right. <laughs> Sorry. I totally blanked. Yeah, um, you and Evan were on episode 175, and then it looks like we also had you on episode 229. So, Yeah, been on yeah. a couple times. Yep, and I think we also had you on Ruby Rogues, though I ha I didn't take any time to look that up. but Yep. Yeah, I've been on there too. So yeah, uh, super cool stuff going on with Elm. Um, it's it's on my list of things to try in depth. You know, I played with it when we were getting ready for the show, but um, it seems like most of the guys on JavaScript Jabber and several of our panelists from Ruby Rogues had tried it when we talked about it. So anyway, um, let's. I, I certainly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get into that. Definitely get into that. Um, let's go ahead and jump in and uh, just uh, go through the questions that I sent you, and then, um, yeah, kind of get the story on this. Um, the we the reason I do this is that there's a little bit of a different take that I get when we're talking about stories and struggles and the things that you went through and how it felt to be where you were and where you are, as opposed to when we're talking about the technology. And the the personal aspects of the technology make it that much more interesting i think and give people kind of a feel for what it what it's about um so let's let's jump in on this first question and that is <clears throat> how, how did you get into programming so i got into programming because when i was really young i wanted to make games um we're talking like i was about eight or nine years old um and Back then, this was in the 90s, um, so I wanted to get into programming before, like, we had internet at our house. And, like, not because, you know, we were unusual in that regard. It was just, like, nobody had internet back then. Um, it was just kind of a thing that, like, universities had, maybe. Um, and uh, basically, I kept bothering my dad saying, hey, you know, can you sign me up for some sort of class where I can learn how to make video games or, or computer games? And uh, he kept saying no. And eventually he bought me this book, which I just did not read called Learn Basic Now. And then at some point I got in trouble and he was like, all right, no computer. And I was like, what if I use the computer for reading this book that you bought me that I never read? And he was like, all right, fine. So I really, <laughs> I really you know, pulled one over on him on that one because then I did it and I learned how to program and fell in love with it and have been doing it the rest of my life. And it's been like a huge rewarding <laughs> career and like hobby and everything else. Um, so, uh, that's how I got into programming. But, um, you know, uh, you were talking about kind of like people's early experiences and struggles and stuff. And it's interesting to compare, um, what that was like for me in those days versus um, what it's like for people uh, getting in today. And I think one of the most striking things to me is that there was no community, or at least there was no community for me. Um, it was just very plugging away in the dark, doing it. You know, nobody I knew at school knew how to program, like none of my friends did, my parents didn't. You know, it, I was just completely isolated, just kind of doing my own thing. And I think that 
you know, comparing that to people I see just getting in today, there's kind of pros and cons. So obviously, the big con is that I had, you know, way less of a support system. But a surprising pro is that it also means that I didn't have to sort of deal with a lot of things that can lead to like self-doubt, right? Like kind of comparing yourself to others. And uh, I, I was sort of um, ignorant enough of what other programmers code looked like or what other programmers, you know, uh, had in terms of standards, um, that I was able to just kind of grow without, you know, being self-conscious about anything. Um, and it seems like now you have so much access to, you know, stack overflow and, you know, open source projects and all this stuff, um, that, you know, without an internet connection was just me and this book and a keyboard, um, you know, I didn't really know enough to to realize how bad my code was. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of funny. I mean, I remember when I was starting to program, um, I bought a TI-85 calculator. I was like 14, and it had programming in it. And I probably only used like variable assignment if and for, maybe while. Uh -huh. But yeah, there was no internet to show me how to do it. I just had to right. thumb through the little manual that came with it. And get as creative as I could get with the, you know, with what I had. And it's it's kind of interesting that, you know, you bring that up now. And it was you, your computer, and the book, and that was it. And yeah. today, people go to learn how to program, and they just go online, pick the tutorial that looks promising, and they just work through it. And if they have questions, they go on Stack Overflow or on a forum or a chat room or something and immediately have help. Right. <clears throat> And yeah, it's just, it's such a different world. Um, I also think it's interesting. Yeah. You went into the, you know, just that area of you hadn't seen anyone else's code. So you didn't know basically where your deficiencies were. And so you didn't get bogged down in the, my code's not as good as everyone else's code. And sometimes I wonder if that really holds people back or throws people off. You know, they, they get in and they start learning how to program and then, they see the code that's written by a team of people that have all been programming for 15 years and have consistently been investing into that craft. And they look at it and they go, well, there's no way I could write that. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk to people who struggle with that, you know, and, and it's a, just a very human thing to struggle with. Right. I mean, yep. we compare ourselves to others. We measure ourselves against them. And yeah, you see somebody else's code and you think I could never write that. You know, it's, I think it's a, a totally natural thing. And I'm, you know, I, 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 I missed out on a support network, but I, I do feel like, you know, that's kind of a hidden drawback or like an unspoken drawback of getting into programming today. Yeah, well, and and I, I've had people come to me, too, and, they, you know, they're like, well, I went and looked at these open source projects and I looked at the code. And I'm like, you realize that that code has had hundreds of people contribute to it, right? Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, many of them have been programming for a long time and came up through C and then Java and then Ruby and then JavaScript. And so they've had the, the a wide array of experience that's informing the way that they write their code. And you're just getting yeah. started. So, um, you, know, the, you know, we don't expect you to code to that standard. We just expect you to keep learning so that eventually you can contribute at that level if you choose to. Right, absolutely. And, I, and that's part of the reason, too, why I'm doing these stories is because I want people to realize, you know what? Richard's a guy. <laughs> and he, he, he wanted to learn how to code, and so he started where you started. In fact, he started with fewer resources than you had. And yet, um, 
now you're contributing at a company that makes educational software and using a system like Elm to do really cool stuff. But, you know, you weren't born doing this stuff. It wasn't just, you know, one day the light went on and it was like, oh, of course, Elm. I just know everything (laughs) about Elm, right? It it was, it was, okay, well, you went from learning basic from a book on a computer to, you know, something else. And, and I think, I think that's kind of the, the journey that we're going to follow next is how do you go from writing basic on a computer like this from a book to, to doing stuff in Elm? Like what, what's that, what's that journey look like? Well, it's a pretty short, you know, 20 years. Oh, uh, is that all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I'm kind of honestly, if you had asked me back then, you know, about Elm, first of all, I would have said, oh, well, by then I'm going to hopefully be a professional game programmer. Uh, you know, I, I never would have thought of myself as a web developer, first of all, because web developer wasn't really a job yet. Um, and second of all, because I, you know, that was like back then games was kind of all I cared about. Um, but now I, I actually just don't care about games at all. I don't even really play games in my spare time anymore. Um, no, let alone, you know, uh, pursue them as a, as a passion. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as far as how I got between there and Elm, I mean, so I, from basic, I went to like Java and C and C plus plus. And, uh, when I actually got into JavaScript, it was, um, it was at a, uh, UCLA extension course. I grew up in LA. Um, and I, uh, like my dad would drive me there cause I was too young to have a license. Oh, um, wow. and, uh, but you know, it was funny because, uh, getting back to your point about, you know, when you are looking at somebody else's code, they have all, you know, who knows how many years of experience and who knows with how many different languages. So for me at that point, I'm like, I'd already been doing, you know, Java, Java, uh, Java, C, C++ and basic. Um, like I, this was like my fifth language. And, uh, at that point I was like, oh, there are no seg faults in this language. This is easy. Um, <laughs> right. But, but probably a lot of other people in that class, you know, this was like their first language, right? Um, and and it was hard for them. But for me, I just like it was, it was in a computer lab, and uh, I remember I, uh, I I managed to figure out how to get, and this will date me, um, AOL Instant Messenger on it, even though they didn't, you know, want us to have stuff like that on there. Uh, and so I would just like sit in the class and like kind of half pay attention and half chat with my girlfriend. And, uh, basically at, at like the end of the class, I felt like, well, that was, that was pretty easy. And now I know this other language and I don't know what I'll end up using it for, but you know, it's, it'll look good for college admissions. Um, and then the instructor e- emailed me and at the end of the course and said that I was the only person in the class to get a perfect score in the entire course. And it's like, nice. that's, that's not to say that I'm an awesome programmer. That's to say that I was just on day one, you know, on easy mode because this was not my first language. This was my fifth language. And, you know, it's really, I think, important to remember when you're looking at, you know, everybody else, when you're on day one, when you're saying this is my first language and you're saying this other person, they seem to get everything so easily. You know, why is that? Well, 
quite possibly the answer is that this is like the fifth time they've been doing that. They're just kind of going through the motions they've gone through before to pick this stuff up. Like even if you're in a beginner class or in a workshop, you know, a meetup, um, whatever the case may be, like it's not the case that everybody there is starting on equal footing just because you're all learning this new thing. So if somebody else always raises their hand and always seems to get it and they're picking everything up so much faster. I think it's important to remember that. Yeah, definitely. And and it's funny because I think as, as social uh, people, as social creatures, we tend to just, yeah, we, we see where everybody else is at and we're, well, why? I, I know I'm as smart as they are. Why can't I figure this out? And a lot of times, yeah, that's what it boils down to is they have different experience than you. And for some reason, whatever the concept is, it lines up more neatly to their experience than to yours doesn't make them any smarter than you or you any smarter than them. What it really boils down to is I've seen something like this before. And so I know how to handle it. Right. It's like you're running a marathon and then somebody else is starting off at mile 20 and you're starting off at mile one. Like, man, how are they so far you know, <laughs> down the line already? Yeah. Well, it's not stuck as they're running faster. It's just <laughs> they've got some yeah. fresh legs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So, um, so you got into JavaScript and then into Elm? Yeah. So um, so professionally, uh, right after college, so I started a startup in college. And through a variety of reasons, we ended up choosing Perl as our backend language. Um, this is a, a web company. And uh, back then, that was like a actually a totally defensible choice because big name heavy hitters like LiveJournal use mm-hmm. Perl. Um and actually, we, we looked at a lot of LiveJournal's open source stuff. Um, so I was a professional Perl programmer. I guess that was my uh, first full-time work uh, experience. Like before that, I'd been an intern writing Java code at a, like a, a satellite company um, over the summers. Uh, but uh, so Java to Perl and then uh, went back to Java, then sort of like always was doing a little bit of JavaScript because kind of I was, I was pretty full stack. Um, and uh, ended up getting into functional programming. Uh, so th- basically, uh, I guess my first introduction to those kind of ideas was um, Rich Hickey's talk, Simple Made Easy. Um, totally recommend check- checking out that talk uh, if anyone hasn't seen it. Uh, he, he sort of talks about the difference between the idea of things that are simple, that is to say, uncomplicated, which is sort of an objective measure. You can sort of objectively say, this thing is simpler than this other thing. Uh, And then easy, which is something that's sort of um, easy for me, like uh, familiar to me, like it's sort of like close at hand. Um, And actually, uh, I guess the, the earlier example of that JavaScript course I took would be a good example of simple made easy, like the complexity of that course was the same for everybody. It just was objective. But for me, that was easier than somebody else where that would be their first programming language. Um, and so Rich Hickey's talk kind of talks about um, easy has this like big allure where, you know, you look at something, you say, oh, this will be easy for me. I want to, you know, I, I want to be able to get up and running in five lines of code and, you know, 15 seconds. Um, and it has a lot of sort of like innate appeal. But over the course of a long project, Um, The simplicity is sort of what gets you the most benefit and saves you the most headaches and, you know, uh, lets you get things done, you know, in the long run, the fastest. Um, And he specifically talks about functional programming. And so he's the creator of Clojure. Um, And so he kind of talks about how that 
like influence the design of closure and uh, and like why it's an important concept in functional programming. Like, you know, uh, why have a method that's tied to an object if you can just have a function and build your APIs in terms of functions without introducing these object oriented ideas, things like that. Um, and I'd never really thought about that before. I, I, you know, been using sort of procedural languages like basic and, uh, object oriented languages like, uh, Java. Um, but I had never really thought about like, what if you deliberately tried to work with a language that was simpler on purpose? Like it, it was, um, designed to remove things like to take features out and work with a simpler set of primitives, um, for the goal of, writing cleaner, more maintainable code. I, I had never really thought of that being a way to uh, think about clean, maintainable code was in terms of its simplicity as a virtue. Um, so basically, uh, that that kind of piqued my interest. And then, uh, so I s- kind of started talking to some of my friends about um, like functional programming and, and kind of getting their thoughts on it, saying like, what do you think of this? Is this does this seem good? Like, this makes a lot of sense to me, but um, what do you think? And uh, one of my friends in particular, uh, my friend Deech, um, he uh, basically we were working together and uh, we used to have like similar lunch patterns. So we would go to lunch a lot and talk about programming languages. Um, and at that point, I, I was kind of doing coffee script professionally. Um, but he was like just an absolute um, connoisseur of programming languages. I mean, he still is. Uh, you know, he, 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 I mean, he taught me about like, Haskell and like Agda and Idris and ATS, which uh, I'm sure he would want me to plug if anyone's out there uh, like interested in like uh, Rust alternatives. ATS is this like even crazier uh, version of Rust. Um, oh, wow. And uh, I guess I shouldn't say version of Rust. It's a, it's a language with things in common with Rust. Um, uh, he's also really big into Shen, which is a dependently typed Lisp that <laughs> compiles to all sorts of different things, including JavaScript. Um, and basically I just, it just like really opened my horizons, like talking to him over lunch. And I kind of realized that there was this whole world of functional programming out there that I didn't know anything about, even though at this point I'd been, you know, like over a decade in programming, I just said, you know, uh, all I knew was like, it exists. And I liked this rich hickey talk and I'd never really, um, explored the, the sort of like, like what else was in that world. Um, but basically, we we would we would talk about these things, and I would sort of present challenges to him, and I'd be like, "Well, you know, what about this? Or, or you know, how how can you possibly get stuff done like that?" And he would very patiently explain these things to me, and at the end, I I end up thinking like, "Yeah, that that actually does make sense." Um, and so I kind of started to be on the lookout for ways I could bring these ideas into my JavaScript and to write JavaScript in a more functional style. And I also started sort of keeping an eye out for uh, a programming language that would compile to JavaScript that would let me try out these ideas and see if I really liked them um, in the browser, which is my sort of you know area of expertise, like area of uh, passion. Because um, I, I I developed sort of um, you know originally I was excited about games, but I, I sort of developed this real like fascination with and love for usability and just like building user interfaces, um, and I at some point, you know, thought about it and kind of came to the conclusion that the web is just the best way to give users the best experience from a delivery perspective. Like you just type in the name of the app you want and you press enter and you're using it. There's no Mm -hmm. installation. There's no, you know, any of that. So my love for the web is, you know, from a usability perspective, I'm like, I care about the whole usability package. And I think usability starts 
with the installation procedure and the web it just has the best story for that of anything and it's it's kind of hard to imagine doing better than you type it in you press enter you know there's like there's not even a step between when you tell the computer what application you want to run and when you're running it like if you wanted to improve on that you'd have to get it down to zero steps like where the computer reads your mind and figures out what app you want and just you know, brings it up on on the screen i saw uh, something like that at ces <laughs> <laughs> wow but you had to have a thing on your head so yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, maybe in the future that's normal, right? We're all just going around with like electrodes on our heads and we're just you know, we're in, in our heads. Who knows? Um, uh, that sounds weird. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be new programming languages for that if that ever happens. Richard, I uh, know what you're thinking. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll make Elm run on it. There uh, we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so so I was, I was sort of on the lookout for a language like this. And actually the first language... Um, so I, there, there were a number of languages out there that uh, that sort of uh, purported to do this, and I kind of looked into some of them. Um, but a lot of them generated JS code that was just kind of like too bloated or too slow. Um, it was a pretty popular thing to say, let's take an existing language uh, like Haskell and um, let's just like make that run in the browser. So we'll take actual Haskell code and compile that to JavaScript code, like kind of one-to-one. And of course, there's some stuff you can't do, like you couldn't port Haskell's multi-threading libraries to the browser because you can't do multi-threading in the browser. Um, that was true back then, and it's still true today. Like web workers are, uh, you know, in my opinion, like a, a, a really tragic missed opportunity. Um, but uh, it's kind of neither here nor there. But um, basically... I, I have a uh, question then, because... Oh, please. You said that you're familiar with Rich Hickey. You've talked about Clojure. You're looking yeah. for a, a programming language that compiles to JavaScript. Why didn't you go with Clojure Script? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I did look into Clojure Script. Um, that was kind of on my list. Uh, one of the things that I got out of uh, talking with Deech so much, though, uh, was not just the idea of functional programming, but in particular the idea of type inference. Um, so... I'd worked, like I said, as, as a professional Java programmer and also as a professional dynamic language programmer. And um, basically, I was just like, I'm done with like type checkers and compilers. They're slow. They're just like, they get in my way. They're annoying. Um, and at the end of the day, I just don't feel like they, you know, I, I get out of them what I put into satisfying them. Um, and this is even like working in a big Java shop where I had, you know, like an IDE and all the refactoring tools. And like, you know, I, I sort of, understood the upside but i just you know felt like it, it wasn't worth the cost it was just you know all the all the slowdowns were not worth it um but Deech was kind of convincing me that with type inference uh you could have so type inferences where basically instead of um so in java uh, if you want to like have the compiler check that you know this thing is a string you have to tell it like hey uh, i made this thing called username and username is a string and I have this thing called user, and user is a user class. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to spell everything out for it. And uh, so there's just like a lot of verbosity and a lot of um, sort of like the, the compiler telling you things aren't okay. And then a lot of times things crash anyway. Um, it was, it did make refactoring nicer, but it also made, you know, it's slower to make anything. And also the compile times are pretty long. Um, so working in stuff like Perl and JavaScript, you know, I, I, I actually appreciated that, that I didn't have to deal with the compiler's, you know, annoyances. And um, 
So, uh, but what Dietrich was telling you about was this idea of type inference. And so type inference is where you have a compiler that goes through. And even if you haven't told the compiler about what your types are, like you don't have to write the word string or, you know, like the, the user class or anything like that, it can just go through and sort of figure out how things fit together. Like just starting by like, oh, you said foo equals quote, hello. Well, I know that things that are in quotes are strings. So that means that foo must be a string. And then when you pass foo to something else, it says, oh, this function must take a string as an argument. And basically, it just goes through your whole program like that and then figures things out. And if it finds any contradictions where it's like, hey, you know how like you're using this in one place over here uh, in one way, and then over here you're using it in a different way. So one of these is going to crash, um, like guaranteed. So basically, it's like, I just found a problem with your program. Here you go. Here it is. So I was like, oh, that's I've never tried that before. That sounds like kind of the best of both worlds. Um, so when I found out about this, that was kind of like part of my, it was on my list of things to try out. It was like I wanted to try out a functional programming language. But in particular, I wanted it to be one that had type inference. Uh, okay. And Clo ClojureScript doesn't have type inference. ClojureScript is dynamically typed. Um, having said that. I do think ClojureScript is awesome. Actually, when I moved to San Francisco uh, from St. Louis, the first meetup I went to was a ClojureScript meetup um, because I, at that time, um, I was like, you know, it doesn't have type inference, but it seems like it's the most mature. It's the furthest along. It's like, um, it's it's doing uh, you know a ton of stuff right. And like I said, you know, I was a big fan of Rich Hickey's talk, and I appreciated that that it was designed with simplicity in mind. Um, and I I probably would have. Uh, you know, spent my free time like getting into ClojureScript, um, except that uh, there were uh, two languages that, that came out that sort of uh, changed that. Uh, spoiler alert, one of them is Elm. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, the, the first language that I, uh, that I actually thought about getting into, actually, no, I, I should take that back. The, the very first language that I was excited about as far as type inference and compiling to JavaScript with good performance, uh, was actually a language called Roy. Um, so this is like very obscure now um, because it, it was uh, unfortunately a short-lived project. Uh, this is uh, Brian McKenna created it, um, and there were a few of us kind of like cheering him on from the sidelines. I had like a couple of commits on there, but like not nothing substantial. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it, it, it didn't end up working out. And uh, so the, the, the first project that I was seriously considering getting into was PureScript. Um, so PureScript, you know, sort of checked all three of those boxes for me. It compiled to JavaScript. It had type inference. Uh, it's a functional language. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, more importantly, it, it compiled to non-bloated JavaScript. So I had, you know, reason to believe that it would have good performance. Um, and basically around this time that PureScript was kind of in the early days of development, um, it was basically, uh, like right around the time that react came out. And, um, and so people were starting to sort of get into, uh, like virtual DOMs and like, uh, the idea of, uh, you know, describing how you want the page to look and then having an engine take care of making the DOM reflect that. Um, and at that point, PureScript didn't quite have a system for that yet. It didn't have a virtual DOM library. Um, and so I was kind of like, like, again, just feeling like I'm, I'm way out of my depth here. I'm like, I don't know functional programming. I, I feel like I would not be able to contribute effectively here. I would just make a bad API that everybody would make fun of. Um, you know, <laughs> and, and so I, I just kind of, again, was just sort of cheerleading. I was just like, Hey, uh, 
you know, uh, people, uh, you know, I, I'm really excited about this, uh, you know, PureScript React bindings. Can't wait till it, till it ships. Anything we could do to help, documentation, anything. Um, and while I was waiting for that to come out, I saw this blog post about Elm. And uh, it was called Blazing Fast HTML in Elm. And uh, sort of the bottom line was, uh, so Evan Chaplicki, the creator of Elm, uh, who, who was on JS Jabber and Ruby Rogues um, a while ago, uh he posted this blog post uh, showing Elm benchmarked against like React and Angular and um, several other things. And uh, it turned out that Elm was doing really well. It was you know, faster than React, faster than Angular, you know, faster than Ember. Um, and, and I was like, whoa, okay, so that certainly checks off my performance checkbox. Like I was hoping for good enough, you know, but better right. is great, fantastic. Um, and Elm has type inference, and it's a it, it had a, a virtual DOM rendering system. You know, that's what the whole blog post was about. And I was like, wow, this seems like it checks all my boxes. Um, I, I'd been sort of aware of Elm before, but up till this point, it had kind of focused on um, games, <laughs> coincidentally, and uh, and also um, kind of like uh, its own like alternative layout engine to CSS. Um, and like those were kind of not really interesting to me. Uh, but this was very interesting to me. So I had this side project called DreamWriter, um, which I had originally written in CoffeeScript uh, and then rewrote in React. Uh, I gave a talk at Strange Loop. Oh, when was that? 2014, I want to say, um, about DreamWriter. And, and that was like before I was into Elm at all, really, uh, because back then the talk was about... Um, Geez, I guess today we would call this a progressive web app. But uh, so this was back when um, I basically I wanted it to work offline so you could bring it up offline and use it on a plane as it was like a, a writing app. Um, and so I designed it with IndexedDB and AppCache uh, back before that was like really a thing people mm-hmm. talked about. Um, so the talk was called Web Apps Without Web Servers. Uh, and the idea was like, check out, like the big cool demo was like, <laughs> I turn off my Wi-Fi and like, or, or no, I, I gave a demo of like opening it up in a new tab and showing that like what I'd written, it persisted between the tabs. And right. I, the big reveal was my Wi-Fi has been off the whole time. Whoa, how can you do that? And now people are like, yeah, whatever. Uh, everybody knows you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and not only now we have service worker, uh, and you don't have to deal with app cache cause app cache was not fun to deal with. Um, but at any rate, so I had had this thing that I'd been using. I'd written like tens of thousands of words in it. And, um, and I was like, uh, I want to rewrite this in whatever functional language I end up setting, settling on, you know, so I can kind of get experience like building a real thing with it and see if it actually is nicer like it, you know, seems on paper it would be from, from talking to Deech about these things. And um, so I, I did. I, I said, this is it. Like Elm has all the things that I want. Um, there's nothing blocking me from getting going. I'm just going to get going. And so I did. So I rewrote DreamWriter in Elm to the extent that I could. I mean, back then, um, there were uh, quite a few APIs like that Elm didn't support. Um, so like I was using IndexedDB and, uh, I mean, AppCache, like, I don't really feel like that needs to be an Elm, but, um, uh, like I also had the full screen API for like a distraction free writing mode and stuff. And, uh, quite a few of those like Elm still doesn't have like, uh, native bindings for yet, but, um, but basically I was just like, you know, whatever Elm doesn't have, I'll just use JS interop for, uh, and turns out I, I still do that today. Like I just kind of, I'm like, yeah, I'll use Elm for as much as I can. And if nobody's written an Elm library for this, I'll just, you know, use interop to, to call it to the JS one. Um, and 
the experience just blew me away. I mean, I, I completely fell in love with the language. I was just like, I have not had this much fun since I was, you know, nine years old writing code for the first time. Like, uh, you know, just, just like, I just felt like a new programmer again. Um, just like I, I would go through and I would just, you know, save and recompile. And first of all, the compiler was just like lightning fast. Like I was used to, you know, Java com- compilation times sort of just be like, you know, minutes. And this was just like instant, like less than a second, you know, it recompile. And sure enough, you know, regardless of whether or not I told it what my types were, I didn't have to say this is a string and this is an int and this is a whatever. It would just figure it out. And anytime there was a mismatch, like I'd mess something up, the compiler would say, yeah, yeah, here, here's what you messed up. Here's the line number, you know, um, check it out. And I would just go fix it. And I just felt invincible because like whenever I would like finish something and I would get it compiling, I'd bring it up on the page and it would just work like consistently. And from my experience with JavaScript was just very um, like sort of crashing into things a lot. Like I, I'd pull it up on the page, like I'd, I'd constantly be switching between my editor and the browser just to refresh, just to see if it was going to work or not. And, and, and if not, like what I'd messed up, what was going to crash, like where, you know, I would get, you know, undefined, you know, I would, I would use it wrong or um, I'd, I'd pass the wrong thing to something else, the wrong number of arguments and all these things I was just getting before I even opened the browser. Like the feedback loop was just super fast. So I just, you know, save, recompile. It's like, here's the next problem to fix. And um, going through this, I, I just started to feel just more and more like happy and excited about what I was doing. Um, and I didn't really appreciate back then, like why it was so different from my experience with Java. Like I thought it was the lack of having to write out the types, like the lack of verbosity. What I didn't really realize yet, I, I didn't sort of like appreciate, um, was that it wasn't just the type inference. It was the actual language design itself and the decision to say things like, we're not going to have undefined. We're not going to have null anywhere in the language. So um, uh, Tony Hoare is the guy uh, who originally sort of popularized um, like null, the idea of null um, back on like Algol W. Um, and he He's called it his billion-dollar mistake because oh, null said, never causes anyone problems. <laughs> right, like he said, like I really regret popularizing that because I think that, like, I only added it because it was a really easy feature to add, and I thought it might be useful. But I think by now it's probably done over a billion dollars in economic damage to the world. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I really regret it. Like it's my billion-dollar mistake. Um, but Elm doesn't have that billion-dollar mistake. It, it's just like there is no such thing as null in Elm. You just um, – like all the APIs are written in other ways, like to, to represent the idea of, you know, there is no value here. And, and it's done in a way where the compiler can actually help you out and, and tell you, you know, where these things are missing. Like I, I've heard that now um, like things like Flow and TypeScript um, – have introduced some ideas of null checking, which is great. Um, like such that mm-hmm. uh, if if you don't have an if, like a conditional that's uh, going to check to see if something's null, then it will tell you, hey, this is you know this won't compile because you potentially are going to have a null problem. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it's sort of like appreciating that you know there are ways that you can just design with these things in mind. You can design things such that you know your functions become simpler and more predictable just because that's the normal way of writing them where like your APIs Mm -hmm. have this, you know, consistency across the language. Um, 
I, I, so one of the, I guess the, the biggest JavaScript library I um, ever published is Seamless Immutable. Uh, it's sort of like an alternative to Immutable JS, um, and and sort of the the selling point is that it's backwards compatible with normal JS arrays. So you can take a seamless immutable array, and it is immutable, like it's frozen, and you know all that stuff. But you can also run a for loop on it. it just you know, it just works. Right. Um, yeah, we we talked and, to Lee Byron about Immutable JS, and it it was kind of interesting. Yeah, you can do all the stuff that you do with a normal array, but yeah, it's immutable, and it you know. Yeah, so well, immutable JS uses um, like a different uh, like data structures under the hood, so you right, can't just does. pass it to a for loop. But um, and and actually, we like originally wanted at work like an alternative to immutable.js, which is mm-hmm. why I originally built it. But anyway, um, and, and Lee's also awesome, by the way. Uh, I'm, I'm a big like Lee Byron fan. Every time I talk to him, it's like <laughs> I, I I learn things. Um, and uh, so I. I basically, uh, when I was working with that API, um, this was after I'd been doing some Elm stuff, and uh, it sort of struck me how different the two languages of Elm and JavaScript are when it comes to design. So in Elm, it's kind of like very, there's one nice way to do it. And in JavaScript, it's much more open-ended. And what I realize is kind of what a burden that places on both me as a library author and also me as a user of libraries um, to kind of try and figure out what's going on. So as an example, it's kind of like, okay, should this function take uh, an array of elements or should it take, um, like, should I design it to be used with, like, a splat? So, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it just takes comma-separated arguments. Um, also, should I have... Uh, you know, default arguments for these things? If so, what order should they go in? Um, and there's just all these different ways to write the same function. Whereas in Elm, it's kind of like, okay, so instead of default arguments, you have currying, which is uh, sort of like if I leave off uh, an argument to this function, it'll give me back a, a function that basically takes that last argument and then continues, which if everything's designed to use that system is actually really nice in ways that are kind of non-obvious if you're in JavaScript, but mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 really nice in uh, like a language like Elm. Um, I'm going to stop and, you here real quick because yeah. you, know, you are kind of going through why you chose Elm and what you like about it, but I, I, I want to kind of get back to the story a little bit. I mean, we've talked about Elm on the, on the other shows, Sure. Yeah, and, and so what I'm what I'm wondering because you know listening to this, it sounds like you had a pretty good idea of what you were looking for, and you know all of these features were reasons why you chose to go with Elm eventually. Um, but I, I'm curious because since you had kind of this list of things that you wanted the language to do, what would you have done if you had never found Elm or if it had never been created? I mean, where would you have wound up? Would you have created your own thing, or would did you want? wound up kind of making pure script sort of close to what you wanted or something else. Yeah. I, th- I think if, if Elm didn't exist, pure script would, would have been my next choice. Um, and I think, uh, I think that's still true today. Um, so like pure script has certainly grown up a lot. Uh, it's, it's like evolved a lot. And, uh, uh the thing is that Elm has too. And mm-hmm. I personally, I like the direction that Elm's going in better. Um, I think right. get, getting back to Rich Hickey, it's, uh, kind of, uh, more of a focus on simplicity and uh, certainly uh, like a, a very overt focus on user experience. Like it's kind of known for good UX. But um, uh, I did think about making my own language at one point, um, but it was, I'm going to say terrible. 
it was a, I mean, just a really bad design. Like I, <laughs> I focused on all the wrong things. Um, I was just really excited about ideas that in retrospect just would not have <laughs> made a lot of difference in my life as a programmer. Um, like I, I was really into syntax back then, like kind of like, here's how like I can design like a macro system that's based on significant indentation. So you don't have to have all the parentheses, but it's still really easy to use. And now today I'm kind of like, I don't even know if I want a macro system in, in a language. Right. <laughs> um, and, or, or for that matter, significant indentation is like kind of the, you know, the way of structuring stuff. Um, but like, again, like this is back in like kind of when I was doing coffee script all the time. So I was sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> it, immersed in that world. Good old coffee script. Yeah, I mean, I remember doing a talk where I, I was like, did you know that CoffeeScript is the 11th biggest language on GitHub? I don't think that's still true, but no, it was at either. one point true. Like, it, it, it actually was. Like, I looked it up. It was like, and, and it was really, it was at that time, this was like pre-Babel. Um, mm-hmm. It was just like, here are the selling points. Syntax is less verbose than JavaScript, and everything's an expression and you can do arrow functions. And that's like 90% of the value proposition of CoffeeScript. And that was enough for it to be the 11th most <laughs> popular language on GitHub. Crazy. Yeah, I, I blame Rails for part of that because Ruby on Rails adopted CoffeeScript as its JavaScript implementation. In fact, it's I think it's still the default. Um, <laughs> I, uh, wow, I did, even on Rails 5? that's I didn't know that. Um, so, yeah. yeah. But but you know, again, it's 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 interesting, you know. You you kind of go through these. So what did you learn? I I wanted I just want to dig into that. You know, what did you learn yeah. trying to put this language together? Um, well, so the the main thing that I learned was that it's really important to talk to other people about your ideas. Um, mm-hmm. so what I did, this is in St. Louis. This is actually the the first talk I ever gave was about this language that I designed. Um, and uh, it was to uh, Lambda Lounge, which is this meetup in St. Louis um, for like, uh, this is this is going to sound weird, but the the sort of like the subtitle of the meetup was functional and dynamic programming. And really kind of what that meant was like, not Java, because St. Louis was just like such a you know huge <laughs> Java town that it was like, like everybody either was doing Java or like, you know, most of their friends were doing Java. And so it was kind of this like, hey, you do Java all day, but you like other programming things. So let's get together and talk about those. Um, And so, yeah, so I I gave this talk and it was like, you know, uh, dynamically typed like it was no type inference. I I was just kind of like focused on, you know, these uh, like. Basically, it was like, I want it to compile to JS, and then I want it to be nice in these various ways. And the feedback that I get, got after the talk um, was really interesting. Um, and so some people were kind of pointing things out, like, hey, you should check out type inference like, you know, more seriously. Because uh, I would kind of like thought about it and been like, well, it sounds like a lot of work. So if I'm actually going to build this thing, I want to be realistic and <laughs> and just like, you know, make something that I could do. And I was kind of like, like looking at... Jeremy Ashkenis's code um, for CoffeeScript, I was like, eh, I think I could probably like take this and kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, t- tweak this open source code to, to get the things that I want, even though it would still be a big project. But the most illuminating comment that I got um, was from somebody in the audience at the end who said, so, you know, like, if you build this language and it's successful, that's going to be your thing. Like, you're going <laughs> to be that language guy forever. That's just going to be a huge part of your life. Um, 
he's like, are you really that passionate about this, that that's what you want to be? Like, that's, you know, the road you want to go down. And I had never thought about it in those terms. You know, I, I was just thinking about like, I really want to use this and nobody else is going to build it. So I'm going to build it. Um, but when he put it in those terms, I thought about like, yeah, I, I don't think I do, you know, like I'm not that excited about this. This seems kind of cool and it was like fun to design, but I'm not, I, I'm not sold on the idea of like being a language creator and spending my weekends, you know, maintaining these things and dealing with bug requests and people criticizing me for the decisions I've made, you know, and, and like, I don't, I don't think I want all that, you know, just to get a, what I perceive to be a, a nicer front end experience. And so I kind of was like, yeah, uh, I think maybe I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna walk away from this and just keep, keep looking for something that somebody else did. And I'm really glad that I did because I'm, I'm totally honestly like, you know, Elm is way, way better than what I came up with. <laughs> and, you know, I never would have found this thing that's made me so like happy and excited about programming if I, you know, uh, not moved on. That's, that's really interesting. Just, just the way you described that. And I don't know. I mean, it, it's interesting. Yeah. When, when people go out and do something new, a lot of times you'll hear, oh, that's the such and such guy. And yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, people certainly Evan is the Elm guy, you know? (laughs) Well, and the other thing is, is yeah, I mean, you know, for as much good as the systems out there that we use do, I mean, people do, they get after core teams and, uh, core contributors about decisions made on the projects that they use. Uh, There are things that people don't like about a lot of the systems out there. And yeah, I mean, if you don't care deeply enough to be able to stand up and say, this is why we did it and this is how we did it, then yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's it's doubly true if simplicity is one of your goals, which is absolutely the case for Elm. Um, and I mean, I, I, I now know Evan pretty well because uh, our company hired him. And uh, so mm-hmm. so I work with him all day. You know, uh, well, I don't work with him that closely, but, you know, I, I, I get to see him all the time. So I get to talk to him all the time. And um you know, I realize now how much of his job as the language maintainer is just having to tell people no. It's just, you know, yeah. someone says, hey, we should add this feature. And um, that's something that I, I've really had to come to grips with is that if you want simplicity, you have to fight for it because the default is complexity. Like it's just if someone says we should add this and you say yes every single time, um, you're just going to end up with a bloated feature set. And not because you set out to have one, just just because, you know, they add up. And so a lot of the times people will propose language features to him um, and he'll just have to say, look, I don't think this is worth the complexity. You know, I I understand what you're saying. I, I appreciate that in just this case, Maybe that would make things incrementally better, but I have to think about the big picture and about like, you know, keeping this language simple. And so I don't think this is worth it. And, you know, speaking about the the journey, that's sort of really informed how I treat my open source projects now. Um, like when, when I get pull requests, um, a lot of the time I feel like it's my responsibility as the maintainer to say, say you know, do we need this? Like to question that and for the default answer to be no. And to say, if we want to add something new, if we want to add any complexity, um, then that has to be measured against the cost of making the whole library less simple. And, um, man, just, just having the responsibility of doing that for a whole language. I'm glad that I don't want to have Evan's job. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to push into the next question. And you've talked a bit about some of this stuff, but uh, what have you done or contributed that the community would see and go, oh, um, that's Richard's work? I think in JavaScript, Seamless Immutable is kind of the big one. Uh, I had a couple of smaller JavaScript libraries, but um, they're they're pretty uh, niche, whereas Seamless Immutable is like Seamless Immutable is used in um, uh, some of Guillermo's projects. I think uh, like Hyperterm uses it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I on the Elm side, I mean, the three biggest projects that I uh, sort of started um, and, and still actively maintain um where uh, the Elm test, at least as a version two, I didn't write the original one, but I, I uh, sort of uh, with Max Goldstein, he and I did the rewrite. And now Elm test is actually something I'm pretty proud of. Um, uh, Elm CSS, uh, which is basically a CSS preprocessor um, that you can use for either making uh, style sheets by writing Elm code that where you can share code between your style sheets and your views. Um, so you can like makes refactoring nicer and sharing constants and cool stuff like that. Um, or you can use it for inline styles. That works too. Uh, and Elm decode pipeline, which is sort of a UX improvement for um, like doing like, like working with JSON. So those are probably the, the big three that I started that people know about. <laughs> Super cool. So the last question is what are you working on now? Uh, so mostly what I'm working on right now is trying to make Elm tests the best testing system anywhere. Um, I, I've kind of like decided that that's like a goal of mine. Um, and so right now the, the next release is, uh, is slated to have doc tests. So you can just write, um, a, like a documentation comment for one of your functions and you can actually put, uh, like, uh, there's a little syntax for writing your example code in those, uh, doc in that documentation in a format where uh, Elm test can just scan the file, pick that up and actually run that as a test. So um, if your documentation gets out of date, um, then you'll actually find out because the test will fail. Um, also, it's just like a, a nice way to like sort of kill two birds with one stone, like writing documentation with examples, which of course is important and also, you know, increasing your test coverage. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and that's something that I've seen in my own experience. Um, you know, usually the the doc tests or the tests in the documentation that show you how to use a particular function or method are, are pretty simple and, you know, aren't really that hard to write. But it is that canary in the coal mine that tells you, hey, look, um, the happy path on this that you've documented isn't right. Yeah. And actually, so I, I didn't really have any experience with these until uh, Noah Hall, who uh, incidentally also contributed uh, to Elm Test. Like he made some like view testing stuff that's really awesome. Um uh, he sort of like turned me on to the idea, and actually, it's uh, my coworker Stufel, uh, Christoph Herman, who contributed the um, the doc tests, and uh, and like now that I've gotten a chance to use them, like the first thing I tried it out on was on Elm CSS, and I added four doc tests, and immediately one of them caught a bug. <laughs> oh, nice! <laughs> so I was like, I was like, all right, I'm I'm sold. This is awesome. Um, so. The- Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance, and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance, or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com.
caught a bug. <laughs> oh, nice. So I was like, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm sold. This is awesome. Um, so the last part of the show, and I'm sorry to kind of rush through these last couple of questions, but the, you know, um, really interesting stuff with Elm test and we'll make sure we get links in the show notes for Elm test and Elm CSS and Elm decode pipeline so that we can let people know where those are if they want to check them out. Um, so the last question is, uh, picks or shout outs, or are there things that you want to, uh, tell people they should check out? I mean, you've been on the show, so you know what picks are, so it can be anything from, uh, tech tools all the way down to TV shows or movies or music or something else that you've really enjoyed. So yeah, uh, do you, do you have two or three things you want to shout out about? Uh, I do. And um, all three of them are going to be uh, ways to learn Elm. Awesome. Um, so uh, first one is Elm in Action. Uh, this is the book I'm writing for Manning Publications. Um, it's currently in early access. Uh, and I think it's good. And uh, so does the creator, Evan. He's been reviewing it as we go. Um, and he's he's uh, sort of spoken highly of it, which I am grateful for. Um, second is uh, Front End Masters Elm course. So I did this um, like 16-hour, two-day workshop for Front End Masters. And now the recording's up. So you can check it out um, at Front End Masters website. And, Mark uh, the is third, such a terrific guy over there. Oh, I, Mark's I, amazing. Yeah. And, and I love their courses. Um, for, for those that aren't familiar, A, I'm going to plug them a little bit. They sponsor the other part of JavaScript Jabber, which is the panel discussions. Um, but essentially, it's like going to a workshop, except it's online. So if you have to get up to go answer the door so you can get your pizza or get up and use the bathroom, <laughs> you just press pause. And then um, Richard kind of freezes in place there for a minute. So you can go do whatever you got to do. And then when you come back, you can pick it right up again. Or, you know, if your kids are screaming or something else is going on, again, you can you can stop it. And then when you're ready to come back, you can do it. But uh, they record it workshop style. So you see the screen, you see the teacher. And anyway, they're, they're terrific courses. Um, I've been going through the Relay course and their, or not the Relay course, the React course and the React Native course. And they are amazing. And uh, Mark just has this knack for picking the right people. So um, Brian Holt from Netflix does the React course. Uh, Scott Moss, who I think is an incredible programmer and just a super guy, does the React Native course. And so, yeah, super awesome. Sorry to interrupt you there, but I just I, I love their stuff. So, oh yeah, no, they they deserve it. It's like Mark does an incredible job. Um, uh, speaking of incredible jobs, so the, the third one is uh, is something that. Um, uh, has been around since like the early days of Elm. This is uh, Mike Clark's Pragmatic Studio course on Elm. Um, so he's been basically like the most consistent source of like high quality Elm material since the very early days. I think this was like the first Elm course that ever came out and he's updated it from like the last like four releases of Elm, you know, over the last, geez, I guess like two or three years maybe. Um, and yeah, uh, it's just like consistently high quality stuff that like everybody who like does his course tells me, wow, this I, I learned a lot of stuff about Elm. This is great. Um, so definitely recommend that, too. Very, very cool. Um, before I get to my shout outs real quick, um, if people want to follow you or see what you're working on now, um, what should they do? Follow you on Twitter, or GitHub or something else? Yeah, totally. Um, I'm R.T. Feldman on both uh, Twitter and GitHub. Awesome. And then um, do you do you have a blog or anywhere else where you post stuff or is that the best way to go? I don't have a personal blog, but um, our company blog is tech.noredinc.com. 
And uh, so we have quite a few posts about Elm, about other technology stuff, um, like front end, back end. We talk about our hiring process. We talk about, um, you know, sort of like onboarding and our, our remote culture because about half our team's remote. Um, uh, so uh, lots of interesting stuff there, even beyond the Elm stuff. Very nice. Well, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. So um, the first one is... Um, if you've listened to several of these, you've, you've noticed that my microphone's changed a couple of times. Um, effectively, what happened was the microphone I had for about seven years finally gave up, and I didn't realize it for a while. So there were some audio issues in past episodes of JavaScript Jabber, um, some static and stuff off of that. Um, so I switched to – I have some less expensive mics that I use for recording with my kids and when I travel. And so I plugged one of them in, but I finally replaced my mic. I'm using an Electrovoice RE20, and so I'm going to shout out about that. It's awesome. Uh, the other thing that I'm going to shout out about this uh, episode is going to come out probably right after JS RemoteConf. And so if you were interested in those talks, you can go see what talks were given. Um, you don't get access to the live stuff for the Slack room, but you do get access to the videos if you want to go buy an after-the-fact ticket. Um, and you can go check that out at jsremoteconf.com. Um, we're also doing some other conferences, so don't miss those. Those are at devchat.tv slash conferences. And finally, the last pick that I have is um, just I just got back from uh, CES 2017, and that's where a lot of the electronics vendors and stuff come out and uh, show off what they've got going on. And so they, they had Fitbit, they had... Um, like standing desk vendors. They had all kinds of stuff. And uh, I actually bought two desks. Um, so I, I'm picking a lot of stuff. But I bought two desks from uh, one of the vendors that was there. Um, I had to order them online. They were going to sell me some that they had on the floor. But CES came in and said, you're not supposed to sell from the floor. So they had to not sell me the desks there. I, I drove down uh. to Las Vegas with my truck. So it wouldn't have been a problem getting them back here. But uh, anyway. That's so too bad. Yeah, that that nice deep discount of we don't really want to haul these all back to our warehouse in LA. <laughs> uh, I didn't get that discount, but they're still terrific desks. It's autonomous.ai, and um, they, they're just terrific people. I, I wound up sit, just standing there and chatting with one of the guys that works in their warehouse in New York City for a while. Um, but they have their basic model. It holds about 220 pounds on the top. Um, you can also take the desktop off and actually slide it out and it'll slide out to I think they said 72 inches uh, which is pretty awesome that's like eight feet or something or six wow. feet or anyway uh yeah it's six feet so anyway cool stuff um but yeah so I ordered two of them online they're the motorized ones so you just push the button it goes up and it'll memorize you can pre-program I think four heights on it their highest model has I think it has wireless charging, the the Qi or Qi or whatever charging in it. It also has a Bluetooth speaker in it. Um, they come so that you can mount uh, power underneath them. And uh, the top-end model also has a learning algorithm to it. So it'll actually learn your habits and automatically adjust for you throughout the day. That's not the model I got, but... It, it's kind of a cool, cool feature. Um, it does cost a few hundred dollars more for that. Um, that model also comes with an iPhone app or an Android app. So you can control your desk from your phone. Um, but yeah, super cool stuff. So I'm going to pick them as well. Autonomous.ai. Um, well, thank you for coming, Richard. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a good time. All right. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. And we will catch you all next week with another story. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.